You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving to you guys and to those watching online as well. We're thankful that we can be here this morning. Um, and on that note, today we're going to be continuing our sermon series through the seven letters to the seven churches from the book of Revelation, a series we've titled Ears to Hear, simply because this is the call from Jesus to all who read these letters, a call to hear the truth, no matter how convicting it is at times, because it's the truth that will set us free. Uh, but the thing is, it's hard to hear the truth and, of course, follow it if we're also seeking out or, or listening to, to too many voices at once, right? And this is a huge conundrum for us today in our digital culture, in our digital world, right? Because, because these days there's information coming at us from everywhere, from every direction, from every perspective, right? From YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, book, I don't even know what Twitch is, books, Facebook, news media, you know, or whatever platform you're addicted to. So it's, it's hard to know what's true, right? We're getting, we're getting told so many different things. Uh, and, and one of the mo- most problematic things about all of this is that a lot of the information on the web that we consume isn't actually verified or published by people who know what they're talking about. A lot of it is just opinion stated as fact. And to make matters worse, according to a documentary called The Social Dilemma and other similar sources like it, we're finding out that a lot of the information we're fed and shown on our social media feeds and in our Google search results even isn't actually interested in giving us the truth at all, but only interested in keeping us logged on. What we're learning then is that these social media companies have created algorithms that are meant to manipulate us by showing us what we want to see and what we want to hear personally, right? They're designed to play on and cater to our personal feelings and our desires to be right, especially on topics like politics and ethics, because they know we'll log off or or find a different outlet if we see too much information that we don't agree with or that we don't want to hear about. So it does the opposite, right? It feeds into our bias and our sense of autonomy and our emotions, our self-esteem, our opinions, and our pride. And and our our preference for this, uh, because this is based on on human nature, so our, our preference to just hear what we want to hear is called confirmation bias, right? And it's one of the lovely consequences of the post-truth culture in which we live in. Basically what it means is that we're often more interested in whatever agrees with our personal feelings and perspectives than we are in objective truth. Kids kind of do this in a way as well. For example, say one parent tells their child that they have to finish their dinner before leaving the table because they need the nutrients to grow and be healthy. That's truth, right? Scientific truth. But then the kid's like, um, no, right? I, I don't like the sound of that. I believe personally that I can survive without eating this food. And anyways, this doesn't jive with my feelings right now, not to mention that these rules are too restrictive for me and infringing on my individual rights, right? Okay, the, 
the child might not articulate it like that. They'll probably just throw a temper tantrum. But what will the kid often do when, when one parent tells them to do something that they don't want to do? Exactly. They'll often secretly go ask the more lenient parent if they can do the opposite. They'll look for someone who will speak a truth that agrees with their personal truth. This is human nature. When we hear something we don't like the sound of, even if it's backed up by piles of evidence sometimes, we, we have a tendency to seek out a second source or a third source or a tenth or, or however many it takes until we finally find someone that agrees with our perspective and feelings just so that we can feel justified and right. And the thing is, with so much information on the internet, honestly, if you don't agree with something, like wearing masks, for example, thank you for all wearing masks, um, but if you don't agree with that, chances are incredibly high that you'll eventually be able to find some website or video or research claim or some extremist group or conspiracy site that holds the same opinions as you do. And it's no wonder then that the Oxford Dictionary selected the word post-truth as the word of the year in 2016. So post-truth means relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. This is how our culture and society functions right now. We're living in a post-truth world that prefers personal opinion and autonomy over truth. We may acknowledge that objective truth exists, but if it gets in the way of our, our, our life or our opinions or our emotions or our rights, we're, we're happy to throw that truth out the window for a more convenient truth that makes us feel better, makes us feel better about ourselves. But while our culture is, is currently ruled by this post-truth mindset, this isn't anything new to humanity. Go back to the garden even, where Adam and Eve were easily manipulated by the serpent to choose their own personal feelings and desires over God's truth, right? They were manipulated into thinking they could make their own truth. And so they went for it. And we still do that today. They planted the seeds all the way back in the garden. This post-truth worldview we also hold seems to have a Greco-Roman influence as well. Right? With so many gods to choose from back then, they, they could mix and match as they liked, whatever suited their fancy. And it seemed to be what was occurring in the church in Thyatira, which we're going to be studying today. It seemed like some of the truths they were being told about who Jesus is and who they were called to be and how they were called to live as his disciples, these, these things seemed, seemed restrictive to their way of living. And so they had been seeking out and tolerating, tolerating the advice and teachings of someone else, someone who confirmed to them not the truth of what Jesus said, but rather what they wanted to hear, a twisted truth, so that they could feel good about their life choices. Back then, one of the types of people who might manipulate you by, by confirming and, and affirming your personal biases and telling you what you wanted to hear wasn't called an algorithm or Oprah or a prosperity pastor. She was called an oracle. Anyone heard that word before, an oracle? This is something like a mystical soothsayer or, or fortune teller, right? They, they were very popular in Asia Minor back, 
back then, which of course was the location of the seven churches in Revelation. Though in a smaller town like Thyatira, she was probably a lesser oracle and would have most likely been called a sibyl. It's also highly likely, especially because the letter insinuates it, that this sibyl in particular was a prophetess of, of the god Apollo, who in Greek mythology is the son of Zeus. And uh, depending on the culture or background you were from, Apollo was also considered synonymous with the god Terimnos, who is the sun god. Apollo was also sun god. That's why they're synonymous. And Terimnos uh, was the primary god of the people of Thyatira and is usually represented with flaming rays and with feet of brass. Okay, so on that note, as we get into the letter, remember that image now of the son of Zeus with flaming rays and a feet of brass. So here we go, as we turn to the letter from Jesus written down by John to the church in Thyatira. Revelation 2, 18 to 29. says this, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's a pretty chill letter. Not quite. <clears throat> right off the bat, though, we see Jesus contrasting <clears throat> and setting himself up against the false gods of Apollo and Terimnos, who, again, were so prominent in that city. So Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God. And this, the, the only time he does this in Revelation, he refers to himself as the Son of God uh, to seemingly exert his status over the false god and, and pithy son of Zeus. And then he also reminds the reader that he has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze, most likely to contrast and set himself against Terimnos, who's often represented in the same way. And you may be thinking, well, John's just copying the imagery of Greco-Roman mythology to make a point here. But actually, he's not. And that's, that's the crazy thing about this. He's not. Satan's, remember, Satan's the copycat. Who, who can only corrupt and never create. Rather, these images which are, which are presented both here and which John also witnessed in Revelation 1 in his vision of Jesus coming again on the clouds with fire and feet of bronze, 
also come from the prophetic images shown to Daniel and Ezekiel in the Old Testament during the Babylonian exile. Of course, references to Jesus being the Son of God are also prophesied throughout the Old Testament as well. And so again, as we saw last week, and as we see in each letter, what we're seeing is brilliant wordplay that directly assaults the false gods of the culture of the day by contrasting them with Old Testament imagery of Jesus coming in glory at the end of days. It's pretty awesome. And it's also an instant reminder for the readers in Thyatira of which son of God has the real authority, power, and brilliance. It's a reminder for these believers about which son of God can truly see into the hearts of mankind and judge justly with eyes of fire, and therefore which one they should actually be listening to. Because again, it seems like they've been flip-flopping back and forth based on their preferences. On the one hand, they've been following Jesus' teachings and doing good works. But on another hand, they've been seeking out the teachings of this so-called prophetess when it came to matters of, once again, idolatry and sexual immorality. And it's no surprise these are the same issues as last week because they'd, they'd have had the same cultural temptations to compromise just as the Christians in Pergamum did. But it's not completely the same, though. Thyatira was actually a quite different city than the first three larger ones that we've studied so far. First of all, Thyatira was a smaller city, about an eighth the size of Pergamum, at 20 to 1,000 people. It contained a military outpost, but was mainly built around and for industry. So it was very blue-collar. In fact, archaeologists studying Thyatira have uncovered one of the largest known records of trade guilds, a trade guild list that suggests Thyatira had important industry and commerce in wool, in linen, in leatherwork, in bronze work. Another reason for the feet of burnished bronze reference, they would have understood that really well. Burnished bronze is like a white bronze, so it's like one of the best bronzes. And it was also a place in which purple dye was made. Purple clothes, of course, were very expensive back then and were primarily worn by the wealthy and noble. On that note, this might remind you, might remind anyone who's read the book of Acts about the story of a woman named Lydia. Anyone from the book of Acts? Right on. So she was from Thyatira and had been led to Christ by Paul when she was in Philippi selling purple cloths. So tradition suggests that Lydia went back to her home city and then started spreading the news of Christ there, which is possibly how the church in Thyatira got its start. So a nice little tidbit there. Um, it's also likely that based on the small size of the city, the Christian community would have been pretty small in numbers as well, which is comforting for us in a way to know that Jesus also cares for the smaller Christian communities just as much as he does for the larger ones. As Daniel Aiken writes, whether you have 10,000, 1,000, 100, or 10 members makes no difference to him. He wants you to be pure where you are planted. He wants you to honor him where your home is. So it's not the size of the community that matters. It's how brightly we shine the light of Christ. And in one way, the church in Thyatira was shining the light of Christ well. Jesus says to them from verse 19, he says to them, I know your works. 
your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So they're doing good works, awesome works in his name. And I think that as blue-collar workers by trade, these people would have known what it takes and what it means to work hard and provide for their families in that way. So, so this call from Jesus and, and to love one another would have been right up their alley. It's no wonder then that they're doing a, a great job in this. You know, the blue-collar workers that we have in, in our church are always, are always ready to serve and ready to help out and ready to fix stuff. Even Henry Borsman this morning was, was up on the roof doing something. I don't know what he was doing, fixing something. Um, but <laughs> putting some filters in the heater, I think. Um, thank you for that. But yeah, it just proves that, you know, these blue-collar workers, they, they, they know what it means to work hard, so it's no surprise that they're doing that. And again, this is a reminder for us as believers that, that, that faith without works is dead. Works, again, works don't save us, but our salvation in Christ should become evident through serving and loving one another and impacting our community in tangible ways for the glory of God. Anyways, for the church in Thyatira, this, this, this teaching from Jesus was something they could get behind. It worked for them, and it fit their lifestyle and worldview. Do good works? Yeah, we're all about that, right? But what didn't seem to work for them was Jesus' call for them to be holy and pure and set apart from the world. They were willing to work hard, but I guess you could say they also wanted to play hard as well. But it's not just that. Similar to the issue in in Pergamum, which we learned about last week, in, in order to be part of a trade guild, you also had to take part in the trade guild meetings, which were basically worship services dedicated to whatever god that guild venerated. So you'd eat food sacrificed to idols and do immoral stuff. Right? These days, you, you would get an apprenticeship and, and, and go to school for a couple months to get your ticket in order to specialize in a trade. But back then, you had to take part in their idol worship and immoral practices in, in order to even have a legit job and be accepted into the guild. And so obviously, this would present a conundrum for them. Jesus saying, do good works. Yeah, got that. Also, be holy and set apart from the world. Mm, that's not really going to work for me, Right? So it's no wonder that they'd go and seek a second opinion of some other religious-type person until they found someone who would tell them that it's perfectly fine for them to both worship Jesus and take part in the idol-worshiping practices of the guilds. And we might think, oh, shame on them, right? But as Christians, especially Western Christians, we, we often do the same thing. If we don't like the sound of something in Scripture, or a command from Jesus. I don't think that something should be a sin, probably because we're doing it ourselves, or at least we want to. Right? We've been known to switch churches or look for websites or celebrity pastors or liberal theologians or whatever until we find someone who agrees with us and gives us permission. Right? And at that point, it's often not the truth we care about anymore. It's feeling justified in our own personal opinions and finding someone who won't make us feel guilty or whatever about our actions and views. And this is pretty much what they're doing here. And from Jesus' perspective, it'd be like if I told my wife, well, 
you know what? I'll do, I'll do chores around the house and fix stuff and honor you in that way. But your restrictions on me about not being able to see other people while we're married just doesn't work for me. Right? That's ridiculous, right? That'd be blatant adultery. But that's what we do to Jesus when we mix and match other people's opinions in with his truth. And that's what some members of the church in Thyatira were doing with the prophetess who's referred to in the passage as Jezebel. Jezebel. This probably wasn't actually her name or even her title. Again, she was probably a, a sibyl and prophet of Apollo or Terimnos, the sun god. But it's obvious that she'd gained a following within the Christian community as well because she, she was telling that it was fine to compartmentalize their secular and sacred worlds. But of course, by calling her Jezebel, it would have immediately brought to mind the Old Testament story of Queen Jezebel from First and Second Kings. And if you don't know who this original Jezebel was, I'll tell you, she was probably the most wicked, idolatrous, and deceptive queen in Israel's history, who eventually led the people of Israel away from God by first getting her husband, King Ahab, to worship pagan gods, to kill God's prophets, to murder innocent people for land, and to promote her false prophets who would only say good things about them. Side note here, it was probably some of these, or it was some of these very same false prophets and priests of Baal, whom the prophet Elijah once challenged to a duel to see whose God was real. And when it was Elijah's turn uh, to call on God, he, he called for God to rain fire down on the altar that these prophets had set up to their God Baal, and God's fire came down and consumed not only the altar, but some of these prophets as well. And as we're reminded at the beginning of the passage... Who now holds that fire of judgment? It's Jesus' eyes who now possess that fiery flame of judgment and power. And and what this means, that's, that's allegorical, right? What this means is that he's the one who searches and knows the mind and heart and therefore judges justly and rightly and disciplines justly and rightly. And so again, by calling this woman Jezebel, Jesus is doing so because he knows her heart. And he's letting the church in Thyatira know that this so-called prophet, prophetess, is just as deceptive and evil as, as that queen was, and that listening to her will have the same consequences that Israel experienced in being led astray. And so while she was probably charismatic, and while she she most likely had an influential personality, and while it was probably easy to join with her because she just she just makes a lot of sense, you know. And it suited their lifestyles and and made them feel free to do what they wanted to do. The reality was she wasn't good for them. She was leading them astray. Because as, as is often the case with most false prophets, there were lies mixed in with the truths. Ultimately, the self-proclaimed prophet wasn't speaking the truth of Christ at all, but like the algorithms on Facebook, she was only telling them what they wanted to hear in order to manipulate them for her own gain. Like the Queen Jezebel of old, she was leading the church into spiritual harlotry and adultery against Christ. 
And as Daniel Aiken again writes, the liberty she promised would actually lead them into slavery and away from God and the lordship of Jesus. And this is why Jesus calls what she's teaching the deep things of Satan in the passage, because Satan is is a deceiver and a liar whose goal is to separate humanity from God. Right? Like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. This is a warning for us today. This is a warning for us today. We need to use discernment and be aware of who we're listening to and following after. And ultimately, if we truly follow after Jesus, we'll be more interested in seeking his truth and his word to shape us rather than allowing our own personal opinions or desires to shape what we think his truth should be. And if we love him, his truth won't feel restrictive or boring. It'll be freeing. As Jesus says in John 8, 31 to 32, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's that's what Jesus desires for us. To live by grace and in freedom. Not not freedom as, as like autonomy, as in do whatever you want, but freedom to live in the presence and glory of God and to be who we were created to be, no longer slaves to sin. But this Jezebel was deceitfully drawing them away from the truth and back into that slavery. Though what's incredible, what I find incredible at this passage, passage is that Jesus says he even offered her time to repent. This false prophet is leading his people away, but yet Jesus even offers her grace. This shows his desire to see all come to repentance and and be set free. But yet she refused this unwarranted grace. And so it says she and those who chose to still follow after her would eventually face the same discipline and judgment as the original Queen Jezebel did or received for leading the people of Israel away from God. But for those who did repent and turn back to Jesus, he writes, from Revelation 2, 26 to 28. He says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. It also says before that that he doesn't want to burden us. He's like, I don't want to give you any any more burden. Just hold fast to what you've been given, right? But this this passage that I just read, 26 to 28, this this passage is actually a direct reference of of Psalm 2, which prophesies a Messiah, the Son of God, who who is installed as the, the King of Kings and who will overthrow the sinful nations with an iron rod, crushing them into pieces like pottery, and this is the story of, of Revelation. We see Babylon being, being crushed, right? By the victorious Christ. And Jesus is telling them there that, that even though following after him may be difficult in their lifetime, that it'll be worth it. 
Because if they're able to conquer and, and persevere and to hold fast to what they've been given by his strength, they'll eventually share in the eternal inheritance and authority over the nations which Christ won through his death and resurrection. And even better, he says, he'll give us the morning star. And there's many opinions about what he means by this, but most likely Jesus is referring to himself here. Again, a direct contrast to, to the false sun gods that Jezebel had been luring them into following. What's the morning star? It's the sun, right? He's, he's contrasting that. And he's saying, Jesus is promising that those who follow after him will receive him in all his fullness and glory. And what more could we want? And then he concludes, as he always does, by saying in verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. No matter how hard the truth is to hear, no matter how challenging the truth is to follow, no matter how convicting the truth is, hear it, receive it, let it change you and mold you, because it's the truth that'll set you free. It might sting or or grieve you at first, but it'll set you free. Just as Paul wrote to the Corinthians in regards to his first and and convicting letter to them in which he called them to live by the Spirit and not the flesh. He writes to them from 2 Corinthians 7, 8 to 10. He says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So again, sometimes the truth can cut deep, right? Sometimes the conviction of the Holy Spirit can cut deep. Sometimes with those fiery eyes of, uh, when those fiery eyes of Jesus reveal a sin that still lingers in our heart, it hurts. And if we truly love him, a natural response is to feel guilt and and sorrow for what we've done, or as Paul calls it, a godly grief. I can remember a a few times as a a dad when I've had to sit one of my children down and and tell them that their actions and words had been hurting their mom's feelings, and once they were made aware of it, They'd burst into tears and feel incredibly bad about what they'd done. And that's a natural response, right? When you're told the honest truth that you've hurt someone you love. But that response wasn't my goal. I didn't tell them not to make them cry, right? The goal was to make them aware of what they'd done so that they'd refrain from ever doing it again and so that they'd apologize, which they were always eager to do by that point. Their awareness of the truth is what brought them to grief and then to repentance and to change. And in the same way, Jesus doesn't want us to live in that place of guilt and sorrow for our sin or for what we've done. The reason he tells us the truth about where we're falling short is precisely so that we can find forgiveness and freedom from it in him. No more condemnation, no more regrets, no more guilt. So no, the truth isn't always easy to hear, 
whether it's revealing our sin or whether it's a challenging call to, to live holy and set apart from the world. The truth rebukes, it reproves, it convicts, and it calls us to humbly respond. And so this is why it might be tempting for us at times to seek out someone who will feed us what we'd rather hear instead. This is why it says in 1 Timothy 4, 1-4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This was the danger facing the church in Thyatira. But it's very much a danger facing us today. To wander from the truth in exchange for false teachers or myths that suit our own preferences and passions. And there's so much to choose from today. But these are deceptions and will only lead us into death. Instead, let's keep our eyes on Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. His truth is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He always tells us the truth we need to hear because he loves us. And it's only his truth, the gospel truth, that will set us free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know the place in which we live, Lord God. You know the challenges we face and the temptations that we face, Lord. You know that we live in, in, in a world of, of information, of information overload. And Lord, it's hard for us to, to sift through what's true and what isn't. Lord, but I pray that that information overload won't affect how we see you, what we believe about you, and how you've called us to live, Lord. I pray that with our eyes on you, that you would lead us into the truth, Lord, and that the truth would set us free. Lord, I pray that you would give us a spirit of discernment in who we listen to and who we learn from. Lord, that we would not be led astray. Lord, but that you would draw us closer and closer to you. And Lord, when you reveal things in us in, 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 in which we've, we've, we've gone astray, Lord, when you reveal sin in us, Lord, that we wouldn't reject it in, in, in annoyance or in anger or in our pride, Lord God, but that, you, but that we would be humble enough to hear your correction, Lord God, so that we can come to repentance, so that we can change, so that we can grow even closer to you, Lord God. Lord, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that you can tell no lie. 
I pray that we would walk in that truth, Lord, for your glory and for your name. I pray this in your beautiful name. In the name of Jesus, amen.